Hello, folks. My name is Maurice Selby, and you are listening to the one and only Health in Harlem podcast. This is our inaugural podcast, and with that said, I am very excited to finally be back here bringing some wonderful information to you all out there. And just for some quick background for, the, for those that don't know, Health in Harlem traditionally airs on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem. And unfortunately, due to the circumstances surrounding COVID-19 and the pandemic, the station is on automated programming. Therefore, we have not been able to broadcast live as we usually do. But Health in Harlem airs usually every Thursday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. on WHCR 90.3 FM New York. And we also stream over the web at www.whcr.org. My name is Maurice Selby. Once again, I am a medical doctor trained at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in the College of Medicine and currently board certified in emergency medicine and practicing in Brooklyn and out in Long Island, New York. And there was a sense of urgency that uh, really got into me over the last week um, after I got a text from my wife uh, talking about, and actually it said, quote, your president is telling people to ingest disinfectants. And when she said that, I had to pause for a second. I, I mean, knowing um, our president and some of the things that he said in the past, there was a part of me that said, wow, I can't believe he just said this, but I do believe that he said this. And at that moment, I just needed verification for some reason. I just asked her, I said, look, can you please send me the source? Where did you hear this? And she followed that up with a link that she had sent to the the news broadcast in which he had said this. And uh, I was taken aback. Um, just for clarification, he was actually summarizing a report that was uh, done during that COVID press conference um, in which he summarized a presentation that was done by Bill Bryan. Bill Bryan is the undersecretary uh, for science and technology in the Department of Homeland Security. And he was just doing a sum uh, presentation just talking about COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 and its susceptibility to various agents, uh, including disinfectants, uh, such as isopropyl alcohol, things like chlorine-based uh, disinfecting agents, UV light. And the president, in trying to summarize this information, um, basically suggested, um, hey, are we going to maybe experiment with getting these things, these things into people's bodies? UV light, um, injecting them with disinfectants. And at that, um, didn't really see the, the reaction of Bill Bryan, but we all saw what happened in the media uh, in the president sort of suggesting this. And really, that's what um, got me inspired to say, hey, we have to get some good information out there. Um, I don't think the president meant that in all seriousness. I hope not, at least. Um, but one thing that I did gather from this and this program is not about that statement. This show is about the fact that people are craving information right now. Um, that's always been the case, but especially right now during this crisis, uh, people are looking to various places to get information about what's going on out there, about this pandemic, how they can protect themselves, their families, their communities. And that was really what got me motivated to finally bring this thing uh, to you all. So I'm excited and looking to really uh, get some good information out there on this podcast and to really get things kicked off right the big topic out there of discussion right now of course is this disease COVID-19 and with that said we're going to bring you five COVID facts ladies and gentlemen tonight we are focusing on the facts and just to lay out the program for you we're just going to start off the first fact COVID-19 is an infectious disease entity caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Fact number two, SARS-CoV-2 is indiscriminate and deadly. Indiscriminate and deadly. Um, that is a fact, ladies and gentlemen. And three, there is currently no cure for this disease. 
before misinformation is rampant. Um, and we're going to point that out and how we can protect ourselves in that regard. And then finally, social distancing works and we must continue to practice this going forward. And so with that said, we are going to just jump right in. Now, let's just start with COVID-19, which stands for coronavirus disease. And this was a term that was actually coined by the World Health Organization to classify this disease entity um, in the context of a SARS-CoV-2 infection, right? So the syndrome, the constellation or collection of symptoms and signs that a patient or a person might demonstrate. So the headaches, the fevers, the chills, the body aches, the just feeling like garbage, right? The cough, um, these symptoms, uh, when an individual has these symptoms and they are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they therefore have COVID-19. And there are other things that we can see with this illness, um, specifically radiographic findings, right? So things that are abnormal on people's chest x-rays, if they have a CAT scan of their chest, uh, we can see some abnormalities that are very closely correlated with this disease entity, COVID-19. So there it is, ladies and gentlemen, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that causes COVID-19. Similarly, HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, causes AIDS, right? The acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Um, so again, uh, COVID-19 is the disease entity, those symptoms that we see, um, the fever, the chills, not feeling like yourself. Um, that is the clinical disease. And it's actually this virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes that disease. And this is a novel coronavirus, as we all know, that got its name by the International Committee on a Taxonomy of Viruses. And the name is based on the fact that the genetic sequence of this virus matches up very closely with the original SARS virus, SARS-CoV-1, which was identified in 2003 and caused the severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak, the SARS outbreak. Um, and that's, that's essentially how SARS-CoV-2 got its name. Now, a little bit of politics and why it was named COVID-19 instead of maybe SARS-2 or the SARS outbreak of 2019-2020 um, is really partly rooted in the fact that they did not want to cause alarm throughout the world regarding this new coronavirus. And so with that said, let's just take a closer look um, at this virus or at least closely uh, describe this virus. And uh, coronaviruses, they've been around for a long time. They are in the Nidoviralis order of viruses, and they are in the family of Coronaviridae, which is a subfamily of Orthocoronavirinae, right? And really, all that really says is that there are many different coronaviruses. Uh, this is one of seven that we know can actually infect humans uh, and cause illness. Now, when we talk about the structure of this virus, um, it is a positive sense single-stranded RNA virus. Um, actually, of note, it has the largest genome of all RNA viruses. Just a quick, quick fact out there. Um, maybe you could win a trivia contest or something with that. Uh, but more importantly, uh, there are four major proteins that we see with this virus. The S protein, which is the spike protein. We have the envelope protein. We have the, the M protein or membrane protein. And then finally, there's the N protein or the nucleocapsid. And the reason why this structure is so important is that as the aforementioned markers are crucial in understanding just how this virus works, right? How it causes illness in human beings, um, how it uh, essentially makes us sick. And also, it is very important in terms of our diagnosis of uh, this virus. So, right, being able to pick this up 
um, as infecting human beings. Uh, but also, finally, when we talk about treatment, uh, which is so crucial, right, those proteins, um, all of those structures become therapeutic targets for things like antiviral medications, uh, vaccinations that we can develop, and other ways in which we can really go about treating this illness. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. That is the SARS-CoV-2 virus, a.k.a. the Rona. So let's move on to the second fact in that this disease infects indiscriminately and could be potentially deadly to all. So I'm not trying to scare anybody out there. But again, tonight's program is about the facts regarding this virus. And that is a fact that we all just need to know. Um, and it's something that we need to internalize and really think about. Right. And the majority of individuals that are infected with this virus, we're finding really don't have any symptoms. Uh, if they do have symptoms, they might be quite mild. Right. Um, there's literature quoting as much as 80 percent of people having little to no symptoms and still carrying uh, this virus. Now, that might sound like a good thing. But in terms of population and societal health and specifically regarding the spread of this disease, the mild and asymptomatic individuals harboring this virus uh, can still spread it and they can spread it very, very well. There was a study out in Washington state um, in a nursing home in which a nursing home provider, one of the workers there, um, was tested for COVID-19 after they had become symptomatic and they were found to be positive. So what the researchers did was they went back to that nursing home and essentially screened everyone in the nursing facility, the staff, the patients, and they did so over the course of a week in which they measured at time zero at the beginning of the week and then seven days later, um, tested again, and then they looked at the number of individuals that actually displayed symptoms over that time period. Now, out of the 76 individuals that were tested, 48, so 63%, tested positive for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, with 27, so 56% of those individuals that tested positive had no symptoms at all. The majority of those individuals did go on to develop symptoms within about four days. And when they actually looked at the viral loads, right? So the, the amount of virus that was circulating in these individuals, it was found to be very high amongst all four symptom groups. So everybody from the individuals with no symptoms to individuals with severe symptoms, they all had high viral loads. And what this essentially translates to, or what this really means is that everybody can shed this virus and they can shed it um, in large quantities regardless of their symptoms. So what that means is that asymptomatic carriage of this infection is a big deal as this virus apparently can be shed from the upper respiratory tract. Now, that's in contrast to the original SARS virus, SARS-CoV-1, which was primarily transmitted from the lower respiratory tract, um, and therefore the infection rates, the, the rates of inf infectivity with that virus were lower in that regard. And this was the tricky thing that I think really got a lot of us, including myself. And I remember seeing the reports on the news regarding this virus in January, uh, where they were talking about the initial data coming out of China, and they were estimating uh, mortality rates or case fatality rates in the you know 1% range. Um, and at, at that point in my head, I was like, well, you know, this sounds like a bad illness, but hey, it's not SARS, it's not MERS, right? And when we talk about those viruses, so the original SARS virus, that SARS outbreak in 2003, 
we were talking about much higher case fatality rates. These were particularly virulent infections with SARS causing about a 10% mortality rate, MERS having as high as 37%, right? So we're talking uh, one out of 10 individuals with SARS, 37 out of 100 individuals dying with MERS. And then we look at something like SARS-CoV-2 and we're like, oh, it's not that bad. We're talking in the worst case scenario, right, of death rates or case fatality rates of 3 to 4%. This is not MERS. This is not SARS, right? So what's the big deal? But that's where I think we went kind of wrong in that reasoning. Because while having lower case fatality rates, SARS-CoV-2 has become the largest killer when we look at the absolute numbers. And that is mainly because this is a numbers game, ladies and gentlemen. When we look at that infectivity of this virus, how contagious it is, as we said, more contagious than SARS-CoV-1, more contagious than MERS, more contagious uh, even than things like avian flu, right? Um, we're talking about this disease being very, very widespread. And when we look at the number of individuals with this infection, there is always going to be that subset that gets hospitalized. There is a smaller subset that are going to have additional complications. These are the individuals that are going to come down with pneumonia. There is a subset that is going to have respiratory distress, respiratory difficulty, even things like respiratory failure. And then finally, we get those individuals that go on to develop not only respiratory failure, but then multi-system organ dysfunction and failure, and finally death. And even for those that recover, they might still have some residual lung injury that necessitates them going home on oxygen and requiring longer-term treatment and therapy. And at this point, we really don't know how long that will last for any individual that had severe disease. And one thing that we are definitely seeing is that young people are succumbing to this illness, with some data showing as much as 20% of admitted patients being between the ages of 20 and 44 years of age, right? And uh, when we just go back to what we said with this fact number two of COVID-19, uh, this is an indiscriminate illness, indiscriminate. Um, not only can you become infected and be a carrier of this illness, but there are individuals, unfortunately, that are going to go on to develop severe symptoms, severe disease, and even have some of those aforementioned complications. Now, despite the fact that we know that this disease does not discriminate, uh, there are individuals out there that are at a higher risk of having bad outcomes from this illness. Uh, and those groups include the elderly, right? The older you are, the mortality rates show um, that the older you are, the more susceptible you are to having those complications. People with chronic and long-term medical problems like high blood pressure being chief among them, diabetes, obesity, heart problems, people that are immunocompromised for various reasons, whether it's because they are on chemotherapy or if they have other illnesses like HIV, AIDS, uh, these individuals, or even individuals that are on certain special medications that can suppress the uh, immune system, these individuals are at a higher risk. Now, one other thing that I really found interesting was, um, you know, at the outset of this outbreak, especially with it reaching the continental United States, um, remember talking to my wife again, right? This is, I get all my social media. I'm so lame. Um, but um, I remember she came to me like, oh, wow. She's, you know, jokingly. And um, it was funny where she was like, yeah, people out there calling it the Rona. Now, I actually looked this up, ladies and gentlemen, to see where this um, shorthand, this nickname came from for the virus and um, couldn't trace it back 100%, but I suspect that it came from black people, right? And um, those are my folks. And 
it was it was funny. The Rona. I love the name. Um, nice and easy to say. Rolls off the tongue. Uh, but with that came some misconceptions. Um, and actually, just looking at the creation of this name, I think um, it's pretty interesting in, in my mind. Um, I feel like maybe subconsciously, um, it seems like we somehow knew that our community, um, and, and mainly, right, this is Health in Arms, I'm talking to Harlem, I'm talking to inner city, urban community, minority communities. Somehow, I, I feel like we kind of knew that we would be impacted very differently um, with this virus. And, you know, the, the fact is that we, we really are. And so those rumors that initially came out that said black people couldn't get this disease and the Rona, you know, that was a disease for, for white people or other people, you know, on this planet. Um, as we said, fact number two, let's go back to fact number two. This is an indiscriminate uh, disease and totally contrary to the fact, right, or that rumor, um, blacks are actually two to five times more likely to die from this disease and it is also adversely affecting Hispanic communities. Um, and really, if you look around and really look closely at the data, a lot of the marginalized uh, communities in this country and around the world, we see worse outcomes. Earlier this month, the death rates for Hispanics and blacks were 22 and 20 deaths per 100,000 people, respectively. For whites, that number was 10 per 100,000 and Asians, 8 per 100,000. In Illinois, blacks account for 36.8% of deaths, despite being only 14.6% of that state's population. In Chicago, the death rates for blacks represented close to 70% of the city's fatalities. Um, and you can go and check this out for yourself, ladies and gentlemen, um, at the Department of Health um, in Illinois, in southern states and states with significant um, proportion of poor mi minorities, these discrepancies were even more pronounced. So let's now move on to fact number three. There is currently no cure for this disease. And, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, hydroxychloroquine was being celebrated as the potential cure, um, countering a lot of, um, you know, or lack of evidence saying that that was the case. Um, it was pretty hyped up in the media, and it was even something that I wanted to believe. I think a lot of my colleagues wanted to believe that, and I remember prescribing that medication uh, for patients and just thinking, man, you know, I, I hope this, this really works because I don't have anything else to really offer um, in that respect. And unfortunately, our sort of dreams and hopes for that therapy have been um, <laughs> brought down, let's say, uh, in that you know, the sort of profiles of risk and benefits, right? If we look at the risk and benefits of using this medication, well, we've seen that a lot of the risks outweigh the benefits um, and that this particular medication, hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil, the trade name, um, it could increase one's risk of having bad outcomes, um, including abnormal heart rhythms that could result in serious disability, harm, and even death. And it seems like the alarm was really raised or went off um, after some data that came out of the Veterans Affairs. Um, it's a retrospective study of patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Uh, and it was essentially found that hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin, um, an antibiotic, was not associated with a lower risk of requiring uh, mechanical ventilation and um, individuals having complications uh, from this disease. And uh, this study it was posted on a, a preprint server um, on April 21st and has not yet been peer reviewed. Um, so that is just something to take into account. But, you know, one thing that really stood out in that study with that was that uh, there appears to be an increased risk of death associated with COVID-19 patients that were treated with hydroxychloroquine uh, alone. And really what this really highlights is that we really have to be careful. Although we want to find a cure, we want to be able to treat people with this illness um, and really just make sure that everybody, you know, does well, that, uh, that uh, acquires 
um, or that is infected with, with this disease, we really have to be careful and do our due diligence in getting data from prospective randomized controlled studies um, that show efficacy of any medication that we're going to administer in treating this illness. And I can tell you, as, as much as I want to be able to, to uh, offer treatments and therapies that can knock this illness out, you know, um, it is really, um, I just really can't sleep thinking that um, we might have harmed individuals um, in being so gung-ho about these unproven therapies at this point. Now, on a brighter note, the, there are some other uh Medications that are currently under investigation, a lot of them antivirals, um, such as protease inhibitors like lopinavir and ritonavir, um, in which there are systematic reviews that show that these medications, um, anti-coronavirus activities might be seen in their early application as opposed to the late use of these medications in, that, in this illness. Um, the only additional evidence supporting their possible effectiveness in reducing mortality in acute respiratory distress syndrome um, or respiratory failure, essentially, is seen only in case studies and case reports. So some early data out there, but nothing that we can really hang our hat on at this point. Um, there are other medications such as remdesivir, which is currently under investigation. And this is what we call a nucleotide analog inhibitor of RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, right? Um, Long, fancy terms to just mean that this thing can interfere with the replication um, of the virus. And uh, it has action against a number of RNA viruses, including SARS-CoV-1, MERS, and therefore it is believed to have uh, some potential efficacy against SARS-CoV-2. And right now there are ongoing clinical trials in multiple countries, including the United States. And this is something actually I just did a shift in the ICU uh, yesterday, and this is something that we were actually using to treat patients with severe disease and complications from uh, SARS-CoV-2. And so there is hope. There's also another antiviral medication, something called uh, um And really, you know, what we got to take into account with this is that any antiviral or treatment should be effective in controlling the outbreak. And this can be difficult to, de to measure and even determine. And what I mean by that is if we look at therapies like Harvoni for hepatitis C or the medications that we use to implement highly active antiretroviral therapy, right? So these uh, combination of antiviral medications to control uh, HIV, if we look at those medications and compare them to things uh, such as oseltamivir, um, an anti-influenza medication, um, there's a big difference. And when we talk about Harvoni, we talk about heart, we talk about uh, curing uh, diseases in terms of Harvoni in its treatment of uh, hepatitis C. We talk about being able to uh, control and get very close to curing things like HIV uh, with the highly active antiretroviral therapies that are out there. Um, we talk about, if not curing these illnesses, we talk about controlling them to the point where people can live happy, acti active, healthy lives um, and really minimize complications. And if we compare that with these other medications like oseltamivir or Tamiflu, um, where we see at best, with the best data, individuals may be uh, decreasing their symptoms or getting over the illness on, by maybe one day, um, there's a big difference, right? And so how are we going to measure the effects of these medications, right? Are we just going to get rid of a little headaches and sniffles, or are we going to keep people from being admitted to the hospitals, from having respiratory failure, uh, from having long-term disability, from lung injury that was acquired from this illness, um, those are the targets that I would like to see from any therapy that is developed, right? The things that are going to keep people out of the hospital, that are going to keep people, going to keep people off of ventilators, that are going to keep people from dying ultimately. Um, I'm hoping that that's what we're shooting for 
with any potential therapy for this disease. And now we can't really talk about potential cures and therapies for this illness without discussing vaccines. And currently there are, are multiple targets and multiple approaches being investigated worldwide, um, including live attenuated vaccines. So these are um, severely weakened, but somewhat active viruses um, that are being investigated um, for vaccine preparations, um, but also inactive preparations and even nucleic acid-based approaches that are incorporating a lot of the newer technologies out there to develop a, a, an effective vaccine. Uh, the only problem is that vaccine development processes can take years, right? With uh, phase one trials for safety, um, this is basically a, an investigation to see how safe the vaccine is. And they typically involve less than 100 individuals in which they test um, to make sure that this is not going to severely harm individuals. Phase two trials look for effectiveness in provoking immune responses, but they also uh, incorporate dosing and sort of vaccination schedules and really um, iron out a lot of those details. Um, and then they also look at the mechanisms behind how the vaccine is working in our bodies. Um, and then, of course, there's more monitoring for adverse effects um, and harmful effects of the vaccines. And then finally, we have phase three trials, which test the vaccine in thousands of individuals and basically continues to focus on the safety of the vaccine um, and also the effectiveness, right? How good it is at provoking the immune system and um, enabling the immune system to fight this infection off before an individual uh, becomes ill. Um, that's what's essentially studied in phase three trials. And then following the trials, the candidate vaccine is submitted for regulatory review and approval and the vaccine developer then submits a biologics license application to the FDA. And then the FDA must um, then approve the vaccine for widespread use and marketing. Um, and that too can take some time to review essentially all of that data, all of the safety data, all of the data um, showing how this provokes the immune response, right? And so this is something that's going to take time and We've seen the estimates out there. Unfortunately, I'm not going to give you any better news. We're talking a year to 18 months of development uh, to make that happen. Um, and then finally, with that, you know, one thing that we really need to acknowledge is that there are going to be manufacturing and distribution challenges um, as we try to get um, any potential vaccine to individuals all around the world. Right. This is something that um, a lot of people will be seeking and um, from a population health standpoint, right, uh, trying to get to that herd immunity um, point where we can, you know, really protect not only those that are vaccinated, but those that are not vaccinated uh, for various reasons. Um, when we talk about getting the vaccination rates up to that level, manufacturing and distribution is they are going to be some major challenges. And, um, you know, that's something that our governments and even we talk about the private sector being involved in this, um, you know, that's how we're going to really have to face those challenges. And so basically what that reinforces is what we said is this being a fact of the day, ladies and gentlemen, right now is that we just don't have a cure for this illness. And um, as it stands right now, we won't have anything um, that we absolutely know is effective, you know, potentially for months to years even. Now, let's move on uh, to fact number four, and this is misinformation is rampant. Um, and that's a fact. I mean, if you just look on social media alone, uh, even if you look at some of the reputable news organizations out there, the mainstream media, and of course, what you hear from, you know, possibly a neighbor or a coworker, there's a lot of not so good information out there. And really, um, what I can tell you is to really don't just rely on one news source. And we really just have to be wary of what we hear, where it's coming from, what the motivations behind that information are. 
And one thing that I can definitely say for sure is that we need to be wary of news and information uh, on social media. And if there is any uh, place where I would say is potentially the most dangerous or that poses the most risk in terms of um, getting information out there that might not be so good and that could put individuals in harm's way, um, it is that information that we are getting uh, from social media. And one thing I do want to say, right, not to be totally negative, and I feel like uh, on this podcast so far, unfortunately, there's a lot of not so fun information that we're getting out there. Um, but one thing I do think is that a lot of this information is being put out there in good faith, right? Um, people want to help each other. They want to be able to inform their community and decrease the risk of people having bad outcomes um, all around them. Uh, but sometimes how we distribute that information, how we even go on to just acquire that information, um, we could be misleading uh, each other. And that is something that, you know, as as harmful as this disease in itself can be, some of the misinformation uh, that can be out there and even the the misinterpretation of some of that information. So going back to how we started this program and talking about um, how President Trump, you know, suggested uh, ingesting or injecting disinfectants into the body, you know, whatever he meant in his intent on that and how serious he was, it doesn't matter. The, the fact of the matter is that there were reports of individuals actually attempting to do just that out there um, in the community after hearing that suggestion. And so that's where the danger really comes is not just the bad information being out there, but then people going on to act based on that information. That's where the real danger is. And it is indeed a threat to our health and well-being out there. So we definitely have to be careful about this. And I would say for up-to-date information, right, if you are going to stick to any one source for the most up-to-date and reliable information, I would stick to the CDC, the World Health Organization, your local health departments, um, as they include everything, and especially the local sites, they include a lot of great information, um, everything from disease rates and even local death rates. They even have, there are uh, many um, local health departments I saw where they actually have maps, right, showing areas with increased disease activity and the number of cases in particular areas. So they can even help you avoid um, this disease in its entirety by looking at those maps. Um, a lot of useful information there. They also have information and even hotlines and resources where you can have your questions answered, right? So in perusing all of this information, you're not getting the answers to the questions that you have. Um, a lot of these departments have that information uh, available to you. And just one thing to really just remember, right? Um, in the end, this is a rapidly evolving crisis, right? Day-to-day, -day, the information is changing. Day-to-day, -day, the recommendations that are coming out um, can therefore change. And I remember people being really annoyed with the CDC, the World Health Organization, some of the stuff that was coming out of the Department of Health and Human Services, um, people being really annoyed. And one particular example uh, was the recommendation on masks. And I remember, you know, seeing those initial um, reports saying discouraging the general public from wearing masks. And really the concern was that, you know, these resources were going to be pulled away from the places where they were needed most, which was in healthcare facilities and hospitals that were treating uh, patients with SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but then, you know, recently the, the recommendations have changed and we've seen these sort of widespread rules coming out, um, especially here, even in New York City, New York State, where we are recommending, right, the health departments are recommending individuals wearing masks. And that's really because of the new data that surfaced, right? We talked about that, that number of asymptomatic or people with no symptoms um, that were found to be positive for SARS-CoV-2 um, and that those individuals can really still spread the illness. Um, and that's where the masks become useful because those individuals that are walking around in the streets, right, going shopping for groceries or uh, maybe they are 
um, the individuals that are essential workers out there um, and commuting back and forth to work, um, wearing that mask can help stop or slow the spread of the disease by uh, preventing those individuals from spewing out virus from their nasal cavity and oral cavity. Um, and so that's why those recommendations change. And it's unfortunate, you know, because I remember even saying like, wait, what? This, this completely changed these recommendations. Uh, but we have to remember that this is a rapidly evolving crisis. And that's why um, we really need to stay on top of this information and make sure that we are getting good information that allows us to take care of ourselves, our families, um, and also to look out for our communities as well. And uh, really, just to hammer home that point, um, this was from uh, Dr. Jamie Meyer, who is an infectious disease expert and specialist at Yale New Haven Health. Uh, he stated, a lot of times people will make basic science observations in a research lab, but it takes time for us to figure out how clinically relevant it is. So we don't just know what this study means as far as uh, transmissibility until we understand more about the granular details of how SARS-CoV-2 passes from person to person, public health dictates that people maintain social distancing, that we wash our hands, and that we frequently disinfect high-touch surfaces. And what this brings us to is fact number five, ladies and gentlemen, social distancing works. And... Uh, we know that I can tell you uh, from firsthand experience, you know, we're not even going to get into all of the data at this point, because I can tell you from the time that this crisis started, uh, you know, weeks ago to now, I've seen a, a vast difference in the number of patients coming in with suspected COVID-19, the number of individuals that are having complications from this illness. Um, all of that has dropped off dramatically. Um, and I remember when this was all just sort of ramping up, when this was all new um, and we were being hit very hard, um, I would say even to the point, you know, we were just sort of just had our head above water in terms of um, treating these patients and keeping them in the hospital and supporting them. And it's a big difference. And uh, one thing that one intervention that really um, explains this is the social distancing. You know, not much else has really changed aside from our behavior. And, um, you know, at first it seems like we really don't have a lot of control, right? Um, as we said, this disease is, is indiscriminate. Everybody can uh, come down with it. They can be infected with it. They can carry it. You know, there's no cure. And so, um, at first glance, it seems like there is no hope for us, right? But when we look at, um, values such as the R not value, the reproductive number of this virus. Now we can think of this as a marker for how contagious this virus is. Now, some of the early mathematical modeling that was done from the initial data that was coming out of Wuhan, China, the origin of this outbreak or believed origin of this outbreak, uh, it was determined that the that R not value, that daily reproduction number, was approximately 2.35. Um, and what that, what we can boil that down to be is essentially for every person that was walking around um, that we knew was infected with the coronavirus, there were 2.35 other individuals walking around um, or infected with the virus uh, as well. And so that daily reproduction number. Uh, tells us how infectious or potentially how widespread this disease is. Um, and what was uh, found was that this number is not a fixed number. Um, you know, in contrary to the number of viral particles it might take to infect someone um, or some of the other hard and fixed numbers that we can't quite control, uh, this we can control because we found that through certain behavioral changes at the societal level, right? So um, things like social distancing, for instance, um, we can actually change that R not number, that reproduction number, we can uh, influence it. And that is where social distancing comes into play.
And ultimately, it was found uh, in a study that was published in The Lancet. The It estimated that the median daily reproduction number in Wuhan declined from 2.35 one week before travel restrictions were implemented on January 23rd, 2020. Right. That number went from 2.35 to 1.05 after those travel restrictions. Um, That lockdown that we heard about um, all over the news, um, you know, was implemented. That's when we seen that number decrease substantially. And from there, the effectiveness of, you know, really broad governmental and societal interventions. So things like social distancing um, has been documented by multiple data driven analyses uh, worldwide. And really what this says is that we really ought to uh, take our own destiny into our own hands and really practice social distancing. And so the big question becomes, how do we do that, right? How do we slow the spread, uh, which you've heard everywhere pretty recently? And really what that boils down to is avoiding social gatherings of more than 10 people, keeping at least six feet distance between yourself and others, working from home if possible, um, practicing good personal hygiene and really you know, that's something that um, I always joke and I say that the recommendations really never change, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Um, you know, wash your hands and pray. Those recommendations have been out since the dawn of humanity and they have not changed. If anything, I would say pray, wash your hands, pray and then wash your hands again. <laughs> um, but that's that's the key um, is that this good personal hygiene. Right. Washing our hands on the regular, um, especially before and after meals before and after using the restroom. Um, uh, Also, keeping your hands away from your face. If you are ill or you have the sniffles or sneezing or coughing, doing so um, into the crook of your elbow, Um, wearing a mask, and that's something I think we'll definitely see continue um, into the future um, as far as reducing the spread of any illness, um, but especially SARS-CoV-2 and and COVID-19. Um, and then also uh, using the drive through or pickup services instead of dining in. And it's going to be really interesting to see what sort of happens after this crisis, after we get better control of this crisis, what happens with uh, restaurant dining and, um, you know, other places where people congregate to enjoy one another's company. I think those things will continue. They are vital to humanity, um, vital to our well-being and overall um, health and well-being and Um, mental health, especially. Um, And those things, I think they will come back as we have known them, uh, but with some modifications. And I think making those modifications and sort of learning from what we've been going through um, over the last few months, uh, we will be the better for it and be healthier uh, going forward. Uh, And just in terms of additional recommendations, you know, sick people staying home. And that's something that too, you know, I hope not only at the personal level where we can sort of practice that um, if we're feeling ill and not feeling like ourselves, staying home from work, uh, keeping our kids home when they're ill so that we're not spreading these illnesses amongst each other um, uh, and really focusing on just getting better. That's part of the the um, motivation, too, and that we can really take good care of ourselves. Um, but that's really uh, just so important. And I'm hoping that at the larger levels um, in our government Um, And even in the private sector, we can start to think about policies that will give people um, that opportunity to do that, to take care of themselves at home when they're ill and also to prevent the spread of um, infectious diseases um, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our social gatherings. Uh, And then finally, entire families, um, you know, if somebody tests positive for this illness, for COVID-19, really just keeping the family home and sort of um, isolating that is going to be beneficial um, for really the larger society. And it's a sacrifice that that family has to make. Um, But again, in terms of controlling the spread and really just getting back to a sense of normalcy um, in our society and looking out for one another, um, that's what we really have to uh, do. And uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci um, our prominent infectious disease specialist 
um, you know, basically that's what he said at the beginning of this crisis that we really are going to have to hunker down. And especially when we talk about reducing the spread of this illness, that is, that's the prescription. Let's say it like that. That's the prescription going forward, ladies and gentlemen, um, and that we must practice social distancing in order to get ahead of this, this, uh, crisis that we're currently in. And so with that said, that concludes this first episode of Health in Harlem podcast. And uh, just to just uh, reiterate those five facts that we talked about, um, COVID-19 is an infectious disease entity caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, It is uh, fact number two, SARS-CoV-2 is indiscriminate and deadly. Um, And also, I just wanted to add that uh, this is a disease that can affect children as well. Now, the fortunate thing is that we're not seeing some of the complications, right? The complications uh, amongst children are very, very low, very low hospitalization rates. Um, There are only a few case reports of children um, actually going on to to unfortunately die from this illness. And those children um, have been shown to be very, very young. And a lot of times they have other medical problems, um, especially lung diseases. Um, but children are not, uh, certainly not immune from this illness, right? And so this is truly an indiscriminate um, and still potentially deadly virus that we're dealing with. Uh, fact number three, there is currently no cure for this illness. Fact number four, misinformation is rampant. And we must protect ourselves by really just seeking out good, uh, reliable information from reliable sources um, before we act on anything that we sort of learn about or hear um, around us. And finally, social distancing works and we must continue to practice it going forward in order to keep ourselves, our communities um, happy and healthy and lead and productive lives. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank you all for tuning in. And the only thing that I ask of you is that you, whatever you've learned from this program, that you go on to share with anyone, anybody that'll listen around you um, and just continue to tune in because this certainly, right, this is the inaugural episode. And so uh, that uh, certainly means that this will not be the last, God willing. And I want to thank you all once again for tuning in. And uh, also we will be submitting this to be broadcast on WHCR 90.3 FM, New York, the voice of Harlem. So I would definitely encourage you to, hey, if you want to hear this again, you can definitely check us out on there, but also check out uh, the wonderful programming that we have um, on our station. And also we have some some more information regarding COVID-19, regarding uh, the um, support that we're seeing coming out of the federal government, um, a lot of the financial support and assistance for those that are having difficulty during this hard time. Um, that information can be found on WHCR as well. So definitely check that out. And that's it. So ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience, I want to thank you. This program, just as it is on WHCR, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas, Harlem, and the rest of the world out there. Take care of yourself.